excited about what uh, the Lord has put on my heart today. Um, I, I told Aaron a couple weeks ago, I was like, I really feel like we need to, we need to, to focus on God's greatness on Sunday morning. And so that's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to, I'm, I, my hope for today is that I lead us or the Lord leads us into a sense of understanding his goodness on a scale that we may not have previous to this. Um, I know that's a, a big thing, but the Lord can do all things, right? Um, so let's shoot for the stars, you know? Uh, last night, I, uh, I am usually the, the last person up in my house uh, until about 2 or 3 a.m. when my other kids wake up. And so before I go to sleep, I walk into my kids' rooms and check on them. Um, and about maybe 2 o'clock last night, I heard this, like, commotion in my kids' rooms. And so I, I go in there and I check on it. My, my 3-year-old is sitting up in bed, and I lean down to the bottom bunk and I say, hey, what's going on, dude? And he looks me square in the eye and he says, get in your bed. <laughs> Which is what I say to him when he comes into my room at that time, right? <laughs> I said, what? He said, get in your bed. <laughs> I said, night-night. <laughs> See you tomorrow. It's a joy to have uh, young kids, uh, especially when they ask you hard questions that you haven't really formulated the answer to yet on their terms, right? So my third son will routinely ask, where is God? What's your answer to that to a three-year-old? Uh, everywhere. He's in us. He's all around. The truth is that there are, there are some things that we are asked of in our faith that we can't quite communicate out loud, but we understand. And then there are other categories of things that we come to when God reveals a certain characteristic of himself to us that we have no ability to categorize, right? Right? That, that was unexpected. I did not think of you in those terms. And so when we're asked those questions, we have to actually come to an answer. So that's what I want us to do today. In 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 9 through 14, I'm going to point out four different things that I think we might be presented with and have a question about. Is this really God's character? And what do we do? How do we respond when we meet God in a new way and don't quite understand how he could possibly be like that? So if you're new here to Church on the Rock, uh, our typical method of Sunday morning teaching is to move chronologically through the story of Scripture. And so November 2020... We started in Genesis, and we've been moving progressively through the Scripture. Now we're about halfway through in 1 Kings, um, through the Scriptures, seeing how the hand of God is moving along the way. And so we started out with God speaking creation into existence. 
And then we move to him forming Adam and Eve in his image and the fall and the patriarchs and him uh, raising up Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and God taking Joseph, Jacob's son, into exile in Egypt. And from that place, a place of slavery and hard work, God moved in Moses to set his people free. Remember the storyline? God approaches Moses as a burning bush and says, I want you to go confront Pharaoh. I've heard the cries of my people. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh, this king of Egypt, says, let my people go. And he says, no, 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 that's not going to happen. And Pharaoh, Pharaoh's reason for that is he's using the nation of Israel as a platform to build his kingdom to build these, not just storehouses, not store buildings, but store cities, things where, places where he can take his crops, his, his goods, and place them, store them, so that he will protect himself from future disaster. So Pharaoh is reluctant to let go of that. But eventually, God steps in and sets his people free. He leads them into the wilderness to Mount Sinai, where once again he presents himself as a consuming fire on top of Mount Sinai. And in, their, in, in his presence, Israel, the entire nation, creates a calf, a golden calf, and begins to worship it as this burning mountain is in their presence. Seems pretty ludicrous, right? You just pulled us out of slavery and now you're here with us and yet we're going to worship this golden calf he moves them to the promised land they fail to enter and a generation later Joshua and Caleb lead them into the promised land and they finally get there they ask for a king and what are they presented with but King Saul and we've talked extensively about the disaster that he became this king who followed his own heart. And then we have the story of King David on the heels of Saul. This guy who through the midst of all of his shortcomings, all of his failures, has a quality about him that is above all else. And what God says about him is that his heart is after God solely. Coming after God, a man after my own heart. And then we have Solomon. I kind of feel bad for Solomon because he has to follow King David. He has to follow his dad in the footsteps of his dad, who's done all of these things to bring Israel to a place of, of devotion to the Lord. His example would be daunting to me. And so King Solomon steps in as the authoritative ruler of Israel. And the first thing that he does is show his humility to God. He says in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 7, he says, And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go in or come out. 
And it's at that moment when he asks for wisdom from the Lord. And the Lord responds, look at this little child coming to me asking for something. And God says, I'll give you wisdom and so much more. I'll give you treasure. I'll give you the land. I'll set up and establish your throne and your kingdom in my name. Here's King Solomon. With all of the things that the world tells you to ask for. Money, women, power, fame, success. And what happens is he begins to not worship the Lord, but build his own kingdom. The Lord has set up an attraction for the world, for all of the nations to come and see his glory in the temple, his people in this state of exalted being. You've got everything that you need. The world's leaders come to see this thing that God is doing. And what happens is they begin to miss the point. Are we really coming to see God or are we coming to see this man, King Solomon? Listen to Queen Sheba's words in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 6 through 9. She says, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the report until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Notice that she doesn't say, happy are your 700 wives. Be a pretty tall task to accomplish. Blessed be the Lord, your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. And so the line begins to blur between who are we really coming to see? Are we coming to see God himself? Or are we coming to see this man full of wisdom? And as Solomon's prestige grows, so does his ego. The outpouring of that comes with his direct disobedience of God's word, which Aaron shared last week, that he pursued the things of the world. When he got money, women, and power, what he wanted more of was money, women, and power, right? So God is, is watching. God is present as Solomon is taking these steps, leading his people in this direction. So what is God supposed to do? This is what he does. 1 Kings chapter 11, 9 through 11, read along with me. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, you have not kept my covenant, 
and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. And then God continues. Verse 14, he says that God raises up adversaries against King Solomon. There's a man named Hadad the Edomite and reason a leader of a band of marauders. And what's common between these two men is that their families, their, their own countrymen had suffered violence under the hand of King David. And since the days of King David, they had been opposed to the nation of Israel. They sought to destroy the nation. And then God raises up another adversary that's quite different from the first two. A man named Jeroboam, who's a servant of the Lord. Listen to this, 1 Kings eleven twenty-seven. This was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built the Milo and closed up the breach of the city of David, his father. The man Jeroboam was very able, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. And at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahaji, the Shilonite, found him on the road and he blesses him and says, prophesies over him, says, you're gonna be the next king. Did you catch why he was angry? Well, the text says is that Solomon gave this man a job. <laughs> why would you be angry? That comes after his death. Solomon hears that a, a man has been prophesied over to take his rule, and he does one thing about it. He seeks to kill him, just like King Saul did. Forty years Solomon reigned over Israel, and at his death, the men of Israel come to the reigning king, Solomon's son, King Rehoboam, and they say to him, 2 Chronicles verse 10, chapter 4, or sorry, Chapter 10, verse 4 says, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. The reason that Jeroboam is so angry is set against King Solomon is that King Solomon was oppressive towards the people of Israel. He had begun to use this nation to build his own kingdom. So not only does King Solomon look like Saul, who tries to chase down King David, the prophesied king, and kill him, he also now looks like Pharaoh, king of Egypt, trying to use the nation of Israel to build his kingdom, to build storehouses, to build military cities around Jerusalem to express his wealth and his might to the world. At first appearance, first kings, seems like a story for us to understand who Solomon is. What's he like? Did he do it well or did he not? And the answer to that is, in the end, it didn't go very well for him. 
But if we enlarge the story and look at the whole narrative from Genesis to 1 Kings, what you see is God's hand moving throughout his people to bring about redemption. And that's no different here. See, Solomon's story is recorded so that we might know and understand God more. Not just to hear a story about a man who was wealthy and full of wisdom. But there are four things in this short chapter, 11, 4 through uh, 15, that I, I want to point out. There's four things, four characteristics of God that I think as we approach them might be hard for us to understand, might be hard for us to grasp. The first one comes in verse 9. He's angry. God is angry. God approaches Solomon in anger. And I would say that there are probably two camps here today. One who says, God is always angry. No matter what I do, he's always set against me. That's how we perceive God. At some point in my life, I always felt like God was sitting in the clouds with a bolt of lightning ready to strike if I did something wrong. And then there's another camp who says possibly that God can never be angry. That's not the God that I know and love. The God that I know and love and want to be near is always loving, is always in pursuit of me, is always kind. And so anger doesn't fit the category that he can display, the emotion that he's supposed to show towards me. What do I do with that? Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. Many of you were here for the wildfires that happened a couple years ago. You don't look at that and say, wow, what a loving fire. You look at that and think, how in the world are we going to extinguish that? We should probably do something about this wildfire that's destroying the land. Deuteronomy 4, 24 doesn't end there. It says, he's a consuming fire, a jealous God. Moses goes on to write in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, he says, For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. Why would he do that? There's only one reason that he would wipe us off the face of the earth, is if, is if we pursue other gods. God is justified in displaying his anger towards Solomon is not only has he basically enslaved the nation of Israel for his own purposes, he is also turning his heart away from God to pursue other idols, to pursue other gods. And so that's exactly the thing that God should do in that moment when, when one of his children strays and goes after other gods. It is actually loving 
for him to step in and display his anger, his jealousy. He actually tells King David exactly that. King David expresses his desire to build a temple for God. And he says, God says this to King David. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 15, he says, I will raise up your offspring, speaking of Solomon, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. Even in my discipline, even in me expressing my anger towards you, what I'm trying to get across is that I am jealous for my bride. I'm coming after my children. How wonderful is that? Even as he expresses his anger, God is trying to communicate to us and to Solomon that he loves us. Second thing is this. God is shrewd. I actually had to look up the definition of shrewd. It means that he's... um, accurately discerning another way that you could put that is that he's judgmental I was going to write judgy on the slide but I thought that was too far you know I felt a little uncomfortable calling God judgy but this is what he says as he steps in he's expressing his anger he says in verse 11 of chapter 11 therefore the Lord said to Solomon since this has been your practice And you have not kept my covenant and my statutes. Since this has been the way that you've gone, this is the way that you've led your life to to go away from me, to expressly do the things that I said not to do. God has appeared to Solomon twice, 1 Kings 3.14 and 9.4, and he says this on both occasions. He says, And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. If. It's a key word. It's conditional on our response to what God is doing, to who God is to us. Jesus simplifies this in the New Testament. He says, if you love me, you obey my commands. If you love me, you won't have trouble doing the things that I want to do. They'll just come naturally to you. If I'm your actual God, you will enjoy my presence and the things that I enjoy. And yet for King Solomon, it's exactly the opposite. King Solomon came face to face with the Lord. Not one, not two, but now three occasions seeing his glory, and on top of that, as he prays over the temple that he just built, he experiences God filling the temple with his presence. He's there, he's witnessing these things. How often do you desire for God to show up in supernatural ways in your life, to see him at work in undisputably miraculous ways? I do. I desire that. And yet, 
the testimony of King Solomon is that those things didn't lead him further into the presence of God. Maranatha and I were, were dating. Uh, she lived in a, in a little apartment without a dishwasher. And I would come into her apartment and there would be, uh, which, you know, without a dishwasher, there would be dishes in the sink. Dishes in the sink. Like a lot of dishes, you know. And because I'm dating this beautiful woman who I hope will someday become my wife, I approach the sink and gladly wash the dishes, you know, singing with overwhelming joy at this disgusting mess that's in the sink, you know. And you fast forward a few years into our marriage, and we've got three small kids. We're living at ABI, and... I would walk into the house and see the kitchen full of dishes. And something just kind of changed, you know? It no longer was joyous for me to walk into that. And I still did the dishes, right? I mean, I, I can't get away from that. But I did it with an inappropriate attitude, you know? And, and what, I, what I thought was happening is that I was concealing this anger in my heart and not showing it to her, but she would so gracefully come and say, what's wrong? Why are you, why are you mad? And I would say, or she'd say, what's wrong? And I would say, nothing, as I'm doing the dishes, you know? She would keep asking because whether I like it or not, my wife probably knows me better than me and is able to say, hey, what, what's going on with you in your heart? I, I think I've grown a little bit in my marriage to, to walk in. I, I, I also think it's absolutely absurd that I can ask my wife, hey, I think we should have a big family and I care about how much of the dishes you did as you're raising these children, right? A little bit of a perspective shift there. In God's judgment, he comes and addresses what is happening in our hearts. Jeremiah 17, 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Can't tell you how much it is foolish to think that I can hide what's happening in my heart from God. And I also can't tell you how good it is that he is willing to step in and say, hey, this is what is keeping you from me. Can you turn to me? Can you remove that obstacle and repent so that we can be established together? So often that Christians say we shouldn't judge one another, right? Scripture for that. But as believers, we are supposed to be sharpened by each other. And so it is actually a gift for us and for the Lord to step in and say, hey, I think that might not be what the Lord has for you. 
it's actually extremely loving to point out sin in our lives. And yet, in our current climate, our current culture, addressing sin is looked down upon, to say the least. Number three, this might be the hardest one for us to, to grasp, is that uh, verse 14 says that he raises up adversaries. It's a common question, a common different, uh, difficult theological doctrine to understand how God uh, associates or allows evil in the world. Do you know that the definition of Satan means adversary? That's not actually a name of this angel. There are many names throughout scripture for him, but they're not actually names, they're just designations for how terrible he is. Satan means adversary. And so God is associated with raising up adversaries against Solomon? more accurately happening here is that these men, Hadad, Rezan, and Jeroboam already have it in their heart to be evil towards Solomon. God is not necessarily stepping in to create the evil, but he is saying that if you are going to continue down this path, you can no longer experience my goodness in protecting you and establishing you so that you know the fullness of my experience with me, life with me. And so I'm going to actually remove myself from protecting you and allow you to experience the fruit and the consequences of your own actions. You have enslaved the people, King Solomon, to go about your own will. And so now you can experience the fruit of that. James 4, 4 through 6 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? It certainly describes King Solomon at this point. Therefore, who wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, or do you suppose it is, not to, it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In God's goodness... raises up adversaries to oppose the evil in our hearts. You've made that connection before? Romans 8, 28, God's working all things together for the good of those who love him. All things, even evil things, God is sovereignly using in order to direct our attention to him. 
number four. God is a promise keeper. He's a promise keeper. First Kings chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the king, all of the kingdom, but I will give it to one tribe, to your son, for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. God is moving against Solomon for his good and also keeping the promises that he made to previous generations. It's amazing. Even in Solomon's downfall, in his turning away from God, he cannot thwart God's purpose and will for his creation. God promised to David, I will establish your throne forever if you walk in my ways and if your sons walk in my ways. And so he can step in and remove this gift for our benefit, but not just for David's benefit, not just for Solomon's benefit, but he has heard the cries of his people to step in and for the sake of his nation remove the king so that they might have less oppression but he also does it for his sake because we are his creation made in his image and in God's infinite wisdom and sovereignty he steps in to show himself even if it's in a negative way to tear something out. He's reflecting his goodness to his creation. If I could summarize all four of these points, God's anger, his judgment, his raising up an adversary and his tearing away, I would say that he's always merciful. He's always showing you mercy. See, there's two ways to see it. You can see Solomon as the bad guy and God as the good guy, or you can see Solomon as the good guy and God as the bad guy, right? It's actually a clearer picture of how you see it is if you're the good guy and God's the bad guy, or if God's the good guy and you're the one with the problem, right? So how do we respond when God shows up and we don't have a category for this is how you're approaching me? There's two examples in scripture. The first is Solomon, who we've been looking at. This man had everything you could ever want. All the riches, all the girls, all the money, all the fame, all the territory, a kingdom for himself, palace money, fame and power, success, material possessions and yet Solomon didn't use those to propel him towards the Lord his heart strayed 
from the living God, whom he had seen on multiple occasions, witnessed. And then there's this other guy who looks a lot like Christ. His name is Jeremiah. He's known as the weeping prophet. He wrote two books, Jeremiah and Lamentations. Jeremiah is known, if you read Jeremiah, as someone who is um, rejected by his family. His family also tried to kill him. He was jailed, thrown into prison, rejected by spiritual leaders who God has called him to prophesy toward and about. And then the worst part of it all is that he watches God's hand take Israel out of, Bab out of uh, Jerusalem into captivity into Babylon. He watches it happen. In Lamentations chapter 3, he writes this. This is, this is his perception of, of God. Excuse me, of God. Chapter 3, verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns in his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness, the dead of long ago. The same chapter, a few verses later, in 21, he writes this. This is actually the only positive section in all of Lamentations. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks My hope and prayer for you is not that God would bestow wisdom and power and fame and material possessions on you. Not that he would exalt you to an authoritative level over the world or over a certain section of the world so that you might experience what it's like to have power. Is that what happened every time the, the, the lottery gets to a certain point and you go, you know what, God? I'd give it a try. It'd be nice to know what it's like to have that kind of wealth. And then you look at the testimony of almost every lottery winner and you know that that path is leading them to disaster. And yet, this other man, Jeremiah, loses everything. Loses everything. And he's able to say, God, your steadfast love never ends. You are always merciful to me. So my hope is that God would be willing to do anything to get your attention. 
grab your hearts so that you might take advantage of his mercy, that you might know his goodness and his love. God's anger, God raising up adversaries, God coming in and accurately assessing our heart is a presentation of his goodness and his jealous nature after his bride coming after each and every one of us. They are presented to you so that you might know his mercy to draw you in. So as you respond this morning, there's four ways for you to do so. Sing your guts out with this worship team. Praise him for his mercy, for his love. You can come back to this back corner and receive prayer. You can give. You can take communion. Pray that you would worship him for his goodness and his mercy this morning. Amen. Thanks, guys. As you leave here today, As you head out into your week, I would offer you Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. It says this, according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That you may be able to comprehend how much he loves you. May that direct every day, every moment of your life. We don't officially end at 1230. Uh, So if you could stick around and hang out with us today, that'd be great. Uh, Help tear down. Uh, If you or someone you know is having trouble with food, um, please come and find one of us. We would love to help with that. Um, God bless you and keep you this week as you go. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next Sunday.